This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. People definitely finally getting together. We're talking about world leaders meeting at uh, the G20 summit underway in Argentina, talking about the global economy, security, so much more. Increased tensions, though, definitely stoked by the U.S. uh, and specifically President Donald Trump's trade war. So let's get into this with our own Alex Wayne. He is White House team leader joining us uh, from the nation's capital. Alex, uh, you know, I think we all know what we're all waiting for is that dinner between Trump uh, and Chinese President Xi Jinping on uh, the weekend. So tell me kind of where we are based on kind of the news flow so far. He's had a couple of meetings with world leaders, including uh, Argentina's, excuse me, Argentina's president, uh, Japan's prime minister, and he signed this uh, this NAFTA rewrite, the the deal he calls the uh, U.S. Mexico Canada Agreement. The USMCA, <laughs> but it still has to pass Congress, right? I mean, that's one it of the does. issues that seems to be coming to the fore now. You know, he signed it, he touted it, um, but th- there's still a ways to go here, right? Sure is, yeah, and uh, it's not even going to get to Congress until Democrats take over the House. Right. Uh, so I would not, I would not bet a lot of money that the USMCA uh, becomes an, an affected treaty. So one of the things that we wanted to make sure we asked you about, Alex, was you know we we've seen uh, kind of the tableau of the world leaders all getting together and seeing each other. They have you know what they affectionately call the family photo, where everybody gets yeah. together. But the lead into that was if I was sitting around my kitchen table at home, my kids would be looking at it and saying. Awkward. I mean, <laughs> what was going on down there? Yeah, you know, for for once, Trump wasn't the most isolated guy at one of these uh, one of these summits. Uh, I don't know if you saw uh, Mohammed bin Salman. He was sort of sitting by himself. Yeah, uh, all morning. The crown prince of Saudi Arabia, room. right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and then uh, and then Putin and MBS had this weird uh, high five handshake thing. Uh, you know, to. Uh, <laughs> Two guys alleged of murdering their opponents, greeting each other at an international summit. Um, uh, but t- t- Trump seems to be so far getting along okay with people. He hasn't uh, he hasn't you know issued a tweet insulting the host nation like he did before he arrived in, in France a few weeks ago. Right. Um, so uh, we'll see how it goes. I, you know, like he says, we'll see how that, we'll see what happens. Well, and part of it obviously has to do with what he says on the way out. I mean, I think back to the G7, you know, mm-hmm. up in Canada, if I remember that correctly, yeah. where up the communique afterward, he yeah. was sort of in good spirits. Communique comes out and all of a sudden, like he's not even in the air yet. And he's mm-hmm. already like letting it fly. Yeah, and in that case, it depended on what Justin Trudeau said. He, right, Justin correct. Trudeau apparently said something that that uh, that uh, ticked the president off uh, at his at his closing press conference. So, are we just being lulled a little bit by President Trump, perhaps? Yeah. And that will get some stuff later, or has he actually? You know, he's been on the job now what two years, and yeah. it's a different President Trump, perhaps on a global no, stage. Let's not no. go that far. <laughs> All right, you know, no, it's, I would, Alex I would is like, it. "That's adorable." I do this every day. <laughs> <laughs> I, would, 
I would I would call it a an unusually uh, an unusually usual day for uh, for Donald Trump at an international summit today. But um, yeah, we've still got another day of, of these things. So one thing I want to know though, with the United States and China, I was listening uh, to our surveillance team on radio this morning, uh, Tom Keene and Jonathan Farrow, and you know I can't remember the guest that was on, but it was just talking about U.S. China. This is not something that you get done in a day. These issues are complicated between these two nations. Mm-hmm. So yeah. whatever we get this weekend, folks, it's just the first step of a many-step process. What's supposed to happen in January is that the tariffs that Trump has already applied on, on Chinese imports ratchet up from 10 percent to 25 percent. Uh, I think what is going to come out of the dinner tomorrow is uh, that that increase is going to be is going to be postponed. Um, mm-hmm. Trump and Xi are going to declare that they're that, that the talks are promising enough that uh, we don't need to ratchet up our tariffs in January as previously scheduled. Is that um, is that what we got from Robert Lighthizer, you know, kind of early in the process? Yeah, you know, they've saying, already hey, been, uh, yeah. it's going to be a success, folks. They've already telegraphed this. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, we've reported it. Other people have reported it. That that, that sort of the outcome of, of this particular meeting tomorrow is probably going to be a kind of a ceasefire in the, in the, in the trade war. Um, but we'll see. I mean, you know, the dinner could also go very badly. Um, you never know with this president, right? Um, and uh, and and he could remain on schedule to uh, to go ahead and increase the the tariff rate. Um, he has said repeatedly over the last couple of days he's happy with the deal we've got now with China, which is uh, tariffing uh, most of the stuff they export to the U.S. MBS, go back to there. We just have about a minute left here. I mean, this is very interesting, right? This is the global leaders, their first really, you know, real interaction with him uh, after Khashoggi and uh, I'm just the death of journalist uh, Mr. Khashoggi. So I'm just curious, I don't know, what will be the takeaway or, or what is it that, you know, global leaders want to make sure that they at least give off visually? Yeah, you know, I'm not. I, I, I saw a clip of uh, Emmanuel Macron meeting with MBS earlier this morning, and um, their conversation looked, you know, a little bit tense, but also basically amicable. I mean, Macron yeah. wasn't like pointing his finger in his chest or anything like that. Um, Trump and MBS exchanged pleasantries. The White House said uh, Trump himself said they they greeted each other. They haven't talked, but they might. He said so. Uh, you know, I don't. I don't know. I don't know that anything is going to really develop uh, with regard to him out of this summit. Alex Wayne, White House team leader for Bloomberg, joining us from the nation's capital. All right, we're going to talk a little bit about beer. We've been talking about it because we're so excited about this story, as, by the way, our Bloomberg Terminal customers. Have you ever seen anybody get so excited about beer? Well, Craig you know Giamatta. what it is? You know what it is? <laughs> Craig Giamatta is here with us. It's because I like Michelob Ultra. It's one of the best-selling beers in America. Apparently, it is really boosting this market. So, Craig, tell us about this story because it. you say it in the story. Uh, it sounds a bit counterintuitive. Right. But why is this so popular? You know, Michelob Ultra is popular basically because it has so few calories. I mean, they figured out how to get it down to 95 calories and low carb. And, you know, it's riding the same health and wellness trend that we're seeing across the consumer landscape. So, you know, and, and it's like a lot of things. Like, it's not necessarily good for you. It's You can't really argue beer is good for you in a strict sense. But it has a way less calories than a, than a regular Budweiser or some of these craft beers. I mean, the IPAs that are out there, these are very heavy beers. Yeah. And there's just a lot of people that want to have a few beers on a Friday. 
but also want to get up the next morning and go running or work out or go for a hike. So it's sort of this convergence of the active lifestyle and the, the social lifestyle. And the advertising has been spot on related to that. It's 100%. like all these like hyper fit people like right. surfing and going mountain biking and then like cheers. I'm having a, no like, beer right bellies, ultra. huh? On these no folks? beer bellies at all. They yeah. sponsored the New York City Marathon. And it's just funny to hear the history of the brand. You know, it came out in 2002 targeted at quote unquote active boomers. So that's boomers that are sort of getting a little older, have to worry about their calories. And it came out right around the time that Atkins was really taking off. So the carbs became this big health boogeyman. And here we are all these years later, and it's still, I mean, the growth numbers are really impressive on Michelob Ultra. That's what got my attention because beer right now is flat. The beer market is not doing well. People are trading off of beer. What happened to light beers? The light beers, I think, are suffering a little bit from fatigue. You know, again, with the consumer landscape, you see sort of people moving away from the mass market products. So Bud Light, Coors Light, Miller Light, they're so ubiquitous. And I just think that the light drinker is sort of saying, well, Michelob Ultra tastes pretty much the same and it's got less calories, fewer calories. So that's where I'm going. The light beer is really, you know, look, Bud Light is massive. Bud Light's still the number one beer and it's gigantic, but it's just not growing. It's flat. Well, give us some numbers when you talk about Michelob Ultra versus some of the other brands. You say the sales are flat, but just put it into perspective and context. I mean, one number was that the sales are up something like 80% since 2014. So, I mean, think about that. It's almost double. From a low base or not so low? Not really that low. I mean, it's it's a mass market beer. We're talking about close to 5 billion in sales and it's just continued to climb the ranks. You know, it's continued to Climb. I think the only couple beers that are ahead of it now still are Bud Light, Miller Light, Coors Light. Modelo is the other uh, one that you point out. What's the story there? Modelo, you know, it's slightly different. So both of those beers benefit from being a little bit more expensive, which mm-hmm. is another counter to, counterintuitive mm-hmm. piece. But people want stuff that's better. They want premium. So what these people at these companies are telling me is that both of those beers are benefiting from premiumization. The fact that it's more expensive is actually helping. So, I mean, that drives the top line, but also people drawn to more expensive. With Modelo, there's some cachet with imported beer. And with Modelo, it's just, you know, it's a new thing that Modelo is everywhere. You know, I see it everywhere in bodegas around New York City, but that's only within the last couple of years that the distribution has ramped up to that point. And it's only been three years that they've been advertising on TV in English for Modelo. So what's really happening is that, A, there's more Hispanic people than ever in this country. They're the core consumers. And more mass market, sort of general audience consumers are coming into that brand. And they're just distributing it more. 50% of the growth the last couple of years is from distribution. So Modelo is a story about sort of a niche Hispanic beer yeah. going, going mass market. And no pushback versus, you know, like all of the rhetoric that's come out of the Trump administration pushed back against uh, immigration specifically when you take, think about the, you know, South American, Spanish. No Mexican sign market. of that at all. There were analyst notes in October 2016 talking about how Constellation might have a problem if Trump got elected. There was yeah. going to be consumer backlash to right. Mexican brands. No sign of that. The sales are up 20% alone last year. And Modelo now has become one of the top selling beers. They have great ads on during the NFL games. You know, it's just sort of a story of, I think, like I said, a niche brand kind of coming into the the, the general audience. So is everybody going to do the same thing now? Are they going to pile on? You know, it, <laughs> do it's, similar types of beer? We'll see. I would think that there's, you know, there are some sort of copycat products in the light space, but for whatever reason, these brands are resonating and, you know, it's difficult. Copycat products often don't really work right these are big massive companies that know what they're doing big marketing budgets and i think it's going to be difficult to crack in there and you know there's some this isn't like a new thing we're not just grabbing onto a number over the last year this is years and years and years of growth for these brands craig giamana consumer reporter for bloomberg our man covering all things that maybe not so good for you but we love to talk to you every time beer it's good for you that's right that's right (laughs) it's not maybe as bad for you Uh, or 
this is the beer that's a little better for you. And Everything you, in moderation. I'm just Everything say. in moderation. And right. as Craig said, you know, it is a good beer to sort of, you know, have and if you got to get up and exercise the next morning. I love it. I I'll love take it. your word for it, Jason Kelly. That's the sound of the men working on the chain. So we're not talking about chain gangs, but we are definitely talking about the blockchain. In fact, Jason and I talk about it a lot with our guests, uh, definitely coming up at the Year Ahead Summit and other events uh, here at Bloomberg, a lot in our stories. It's now been around for about a decade. Go figure. Still trying to figure it out, though, and assess its impact, the good, the bad uh, of the blockchain. Kevin Werbach is Professor of Legal Studies and Business Ethics at Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania, based in Philadelphia, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. He's got a new book out. He's been really busy making the rounds uh, this week. It's called The Blockchain and the New Architecture of Trust. Nice to have you here. You know, it's so funny. Go back a couple of years, and I feel like, you know, we were introduced to the blockchain, right? And then came digital currency, and we all thought, okay, that's what it's all about. It's not really what it's about. There's, it's a bigger, broader thing that could impact the way transactions happen and maybe how we make things secure, or we'll have to see <laughs> if that's truly the case. Absolutely. No, we got so fixated on this speculative bubble in yeah. cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin uh, that people miss the big picture. And the big picture is actually deeper than cryptocurrencies. It's deeper than money. It's fundamentally about trust. We all know there's a crisis of trust, that trust in government, trust in the media, trust in companies is being undermined. Blockchain fundamentally is a new form of trust. It's a way to trust in transactions, secure exchange of value without having to trust an intermediary, without having to trust anyone to verify those transactions. That's actually much, much more powerful than just digital currency. Well, and what's funny about it being so a, a part of, or trust being such a big part of it is one of the big criticisms about, about crypto and Bitcoin is that it's sort of murky and it's used for criminal activity or it's used largely by people who don't trust the government. Um, and, and so how do you sort of synthesize that in a lot of ways? And is it just that Bitcoin has kind of overtaken the, the conversation? This is a lot of what I talk about in the book. A lot of the early people in Bitcoin said, oh, this, we don't need trust, right? We yeah. just can trust the technology and trust the code. Well, it turns out even if the blockchain makes the exchange itself trustworthy, even if you can be sure that the ledger is accurate, you've got to trust the whole system. Yeah. What if someone is using it for money laundering? What if there's fraud? What if someone puts inaccurate information in the blockchain? We need to trust the overall system involved. And so that actually means integrating this technology with law and regulation and governance. And that's well, what's starting to happen. This is what's interesting, starting to happen. But I'm thinking about the Facebook story, right? Search and social media, right? They've been around for a long time. And we're just starting to scratch the surface, right, in terms of maybe greater regulation. And we've talked uh, with David Siegel of Two Sigma, who thinks, you know, take the FINRA model from the financial industry, have the players, the big players involved in creating the right kind of regulatory environment. So, you know... What's going to be different, though, is blockchain, like, you, like I said, it's been around for almost a decade. I mean, are we really starting to see some regulations? Or, I mean, I don't feel like we've even started to see the impact and the effect that it might have. It's still very early in some ways. You can say it's been 10 years since the Bitcoin white paper was published. Right. Really, it's only two, three, four years since there's been any significant adoption of this technology. I mean, do we really understand yeah. the, the, the impact that this will have? I mean, or how do you see it? in terms of the impact? Oh, well, so the impact is potentially transformative because it's a new layer for transactions. It's not, again, just about currency. Anytime businesses need to interact, 
and they don't fully trust each other. They need some way where if they could all share the data, as opposed to each having their own copy of the data, it would lead to tremendous efficiency. So, so what? Yeah. Like what? Patents? Supply like chains. Supply so, chains. So companies around the world uh, have to move things all over the world, and they each keep their own copy of the information. No one has global visibility. If you ship something around the world, I mean, logistics is a $5 trillion a year industry. No one can see when things go from end to end. And that leads to tremendous inefficiencies and tremendous loss. And so the idea with blockchain is if there's one shared ledger, then everyone can see it and everyone can take advantage of it. And so as you look around, as you research this book, you know, what are the examples that people can sink their teeth into of companies or institutions who are using it and maybe sort of ahead of the curve? Yeah, so it is still very early. Yeah. Most of what we had, and that's part of the problem. People thought that just because we'd see these early investments that they're all going to happen immediately. If we're talking about enterprise deployment, it takes years. So IBM uh, and Walmart have gone to full deployment of a system for tracking uh, food products through the supply chain. So things like lettuce. We had this huge romaine lettuce outbreak with E. coli. They had to take it all off the shelves in the entire country. With this platform, they're able to track in real time all the way from the farm, all the way to the store, and then be able to find where something came from much more quickly. That's going to deployment. There's some So in that case, just sorry to interrupt you. So in that case, you could have a situation where it's like, okay, we actually can contain this and say that it's only from this farm or it's only to these stores. Take that off the shelves and then everybody is... Okay. Yeah, the Walmart test they did of this, originally when they wanted to track something that was bought at a Walmart and they wanted to say, find out what farm it came from, six and a half days. And, and Walmart is incredibly good at this. They're one of the yeah. best supply chain companies in the world. With the blockchain platform, they got it down to about two and a half seconds. Holy smokes. Yeah. Wow. That's, so that's, that's the potential. And then you layer on that all of the financial applications well, we, and all know, the transactional The magazine has talked about, we actually did a story that, uh, uh, I forget, was it Africa in terms of an emerging market, right? And using blockchain to kind of create a currency and a way for people to transact for people who didn't have a lot of money and stuff and how it really made this kind of a more economically viable area. There's a remote area that really doesn't get to tap into the financial system or infrastructure. It's pretty impressive. Oh, absolutely. There's tremendous potential for financial inclusion. Yeah. But we have to not get ahead of ourselves. Right. Because, again, if you can't trust what's at the edges, you can't trust how the information comes in, then the ledger itself is not enough. So the, the situations, ul- yeah. Will it ultimately, I'm forgetting, because we're running out of time, yeah. but on a day when we had a big hack with Marriott, will yeah. it ultimately be secure? Oh, absolutely. The blockchain itself can be secure, but you've got to secure everything around the edges and build a whole ecosystem. Pretty cool stuff. Kevin Werbeck, wow. professor of legal studies and importantly for this uh, mm-hmm. conversation, business, uh, business ethics at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. The new book is The Blockchain and the New Architecture of Trust. Thank you so much uh, for coming in and spending some time with us. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Jason Kelly with Carol Masser here on Bloomberg Radio. Carol, I feel like we talk a lot about AI, all all its hopes and dreams, all the promises. We just had an interesting conversation about the ethics of it Mm -hmm. uh, yesterday. But after all, this is Bloomberg. You and I, we like to know where the money is. (laughs) We do. uh, Behind this. Follow the money. We've got a guy who's going to give us some real insights into that. That's Varun Jain. He is Senior Investment Manager at Qualcomm Ventures based in San Diego. He's in our Bloomberg 960 studio in San Francisco joining us today. Varun, nice to be with you. 
Hey guys, happy Friday. Thank you so much for having me. And to you. Uh, so you got a new AI fund. You're going to put $100 million into this business. Tell us why you're doing this now. Absolutely. So as you rightly pointed out, you know, we are going to through this massive transformation around AI. And at Qualcomm, we believe that there are two macro, these, like AI and 5G are the two macro trends on the basis of which we are going to see a super cycle of innovation over the next two to three decades. And it is our mandate to make this AI ubiquitous and make it available to every single device that you touch during your everyday life. Doesn't matter if it's your smartphone or your television or things at your work, or if you are in the construction industry, it's your equipment, or if you're a farmer, it's your agricultural uh, equipment. Everything is becoming connected and is developing the ability to process data. And therefore, we believe once these things get empowered by AI, they would be able to offer some very compelling value that would not only just transform industries, but change life as we know it. Hey, hey Varun, I feel like we've been having these conversations, though, about kind of the importance of AI and the impact it's going to have for a while now. And we are seeing a lot of money mm-hmm. um, going towards this. I think uh, some project the AI market to be around $191 billion by 2024. So tell me what seem to be the most promising areas um, that are using AI and where you're seeing a lot of of money go into where you're channeling a lot of money? Are you going into the ones that are going to come to fruition sooner rather than later? Yeah, I would say, see, AI is touching almost every single industry and every major use case out there. However, today, if we look at the market, especially what's happening in Silicon Valley, a lot of impetus around AI is centered around self-driving cars, for instance. Now, we've been actively tapping into this trend, not now, but for almost 10 years as a company, and talking specifically about the investments, we were um, a very early investor in a company called Cruise Automation, which has this grand vision of being able to build a fleet of self-driving cars that could potentially disrupt companies like Uber down the road. And uh, we had the privilege of being a partner with them early on, and given all the progress that they made, they managed, uh, they, they were acquired by General Motors, and today now are part of that large corporation. So I believe autonomous cars today, among the many applications, use cases of AI out there is probably one of the most uh, most interesting ones. But if you look at the smartphone itself, it is so pervasive. All of us have one in our pocket. And if you look at many of the enabling features inside the phone, all of them are being transformed by AI. Your, the camera on your phone, it is probably the most compelling mass application of the ways in which AI can, you know, give you uh, joy and create value. Hey, so. I- yeah, oh, yeah please. No, no, no. Please finish. Yeah, so that, that's what I'm trying to say, that uh, we are seeing value being created in every pocket, but I'm particularly excited about this whole transformation around autonomy and how that transformation around autonomy goes beyond just cars and trucks and the same technology then starts going into other industries. So just like social, cloud, mobile, all of which started like vertical trends, but then became very pervasive and started touching every aspect of our life. Right. We believe artificial intelligence and autonomy will go the same way over hey, the next decade. I am curious, are you guys using AI to kind of filter through deals, potential investments? Well, not yet, but uh, I think it's a matter of time before we start m- filtering through the top of the funnel through some elements of data intelligence. But at this point, I would say you still need folks like me and people in general to sift through amazing ideas and understand 
you know, which are the right teams that we should back. Varun Jain, you are Senior Investment Manager at Qualcomm Ventures based in San Diego, uh, but we're delighted you're with us in our Bloomberg 960 studio in San Francisco today. Eager to check in with you as it goes along to see where you're putting uh, some of that money to work. You know, one of the interesting things that strikes me, given what he said, I was glad he went to talking about Cruz because that's where I was going to go with him. We just talked yesterday about the fact Mm -hmm. Dan Ammon, the president of GM, moving over to run the cruise business. I feel like we're going to look back five years, three years from now, I don't know what it's going to be. And we're going to say this was a pivotal decision, pivotal moves by General Motors this week, you know, or over the past week, we, a big story with General Motors, cutting thousands of jobs, cutting down plants that are really connected, what, the, with, with you know, the old-fashioned engine. Combustion engines, yeah. If you're not going to need them in the future, you don't need those kind of plants nor workers. And then putting Dan Ammon in charge of their self-driving, uh, you know, and looking really forward when it comes to General Motors. I should point out GM shares, they are up about 3% as we speak in today's session. Stock's still down about uh, 8% for the year, but nonetheless, uh, it's definitely getting a lot more attention since some of these moves. It rallied about 5% on Monday. I'm driving in my car I turn on the radio How about you let me drive? Oh no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Jim Russell back with us, principal and portfolio manager over at Ball and Gainer. The firm has uh, over $24 billion in assets under management. Jim joining us on the phone from Cincinnati. Happy Friday. Nice to uh, talk with you once again. I pulled up the S&P 500. Lo and behold, am I right? It's really up 4.7% this week. Uh, I think that's right. I think we've got a very, very nice bounce here. Uh, you know, much of this, uh, maybe it was a little overdone on the downside last week, a little bit of catch up this week. Of course, we've had Chairman Powell come to the rescue to some extent from a sentiment standpoint, as well as optimism uh, around tomorrow's dinner uh, in uh, in the G20. So we'll have to see what happens here. All right. So let's talk about that dinner, because I feel like we've been talking about it for weeks. I mean, even right. we, it, it felt like it took center stage just as we were, certainly as we got past the midterm elections here in, in the U.S. What do you, as an investor, what do you need to see out of that? Or what do you expect to see out of it? You know, what we expect is probably no different than uh, probably a lot of your other guests, and that is we'll have the two principals at the table. Uh, We'll have seven advisors on each side, and usually when that is the format, uh, nothing of substance in terms of detailed uh, problem-solving really comes about. What really happens is an agreement to start the discussions maybe later in December, maybe in January, uh, maybe a framework on on what those are. It's our understanding that perhaps uh, the tariffs that are maybe scheduled, uh, you know, for additional tariffs on the Chinese imports maybe get put on hold here a little bit. Uh, the market is looking forward to that. I think that some of this is already discounted maybe in, in this week's pricing uh, in the equity market anyway. So uh, I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if 
um, you know, the weekend's announcements are consistent with that expectation. So if we get through the weekend, which we all hope we do, and U.S. and China mm-hmm. trade negotiations, uh, and then we get through uh, the jobs report next week. Right. I'm curious. And then, of course, we have the Fed meeting in December. I am curious where you think the market should be focusing right now. And I, I bring up things like fundamentals, valuations. They've come way down. I'm just curious where you think investors should really be focusing on to get a true idea of maybe what comes next from the equity trade. Right. Carol, thank you for asking. Uh, I would tell you that uh, we are very glad that perhaps the market uh, starts to uh, focus a bit more on fundamentals, on valuation, on top line, on dividends, on balance sheets, that's where we focus at Ball and Gainer. We are an equity income growth shop. We focus on cash flows. And we do think that that focus and the step down, by the way, of the earnings growth that's going to be 20% this year, full year 2018, is going to step down to something that looks like 7, 8, or 9 next year. And we do think that with that slowdown in earnings growth, perhaps a rotation away from all fang all the time or all growth all the time, becomes a little bit more operative. So I can see a scenario, um, you know, without reaching too far, that 2019 uh, it shades of gray type of stuff, not absolute, but a little bit of move from growth to value and to a little higher quality security where dividends matter. Because we do think that returns will be, let's just call it mid-single digit next year. Um, this year, for instance, We've had a market where the earnings were up 20%. The market's up 3 or 4%. So PE multiples have come in quite a bit. So the market has actually gotten cheaper as we have run through 2018. So we don't think market valuations are suspect on the high side. We think stock selection is going to be paramount next year. And so as you talk to your clients, as they call you up on the phone or you're doing your check-ins, what's the number one concern they have going into 19? Because I would imagine you're doing some future planning at this point, thinking about all these economic uh, trends that that you've been discussing. What's on their minds? Uh, Our clients are telling us the following, and this is uh, both on the institutional and private client side. Hey, we've had a pretty good run here for several years. Just don't lose it. We don't have to reach for the moon and stars. We don't have to top tick uh, and beat, uh, you know, the index by some sort of margin. But what we do not want to do is lose what we've gained over the last several years. That's important. So playing a little bit of defense seems to be on everybody's mind here. Jim Russell, principal and portfolio manager out at Ball and Gainer in Cincinnati. We really appreciate it. Have a great weekend and happy December. Carol, Can you uh, just taking a look, and I think this is just a signal that it is Friday afternoon. Uh, you know, we were talking about the most read stories that number one was the hack, number two is beer. A uh, beer is now number one. <laughs> <laughs> so people are already thinking about so the So people weekend. are sort of well, sliding into a Friday afternoon. If you're trying to be more upbeat, certainly about the equity markets, you know, this has been a bullish risk on trade this week. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.